the basketball and diamond sport crossover season. So excited. Uh, definitely my favorite crossover of the year. It means that spring weather is coming. And as all, as we both know, well, Gavin, I'm not sure if you know, but Charlie and I know that spring in Eugene is a grand old time. And I am super, super excited about it. Uh, but let's start out with some Oregon basketball, though, before we get into the diamond sports. Um, not a great weekend for either team. The women's team, they went 0-2 in back-to-back matchups against top 25 teams in Utah and Colorado. The men's team, they took the victory in Thursday's matchup with Arizona State, but couldn't get it done against the Wildcats on Saturday. It was a really tough matchup. The men's team, luckily for them, they're still tied for first place in the Pac-12 with Arizona. Uh, but both teams, they're trying to turn things around this weekend. We'll start with the men's team, bringing you guys in. Uh, the men's team, they head to California for matches with USC and UCLA. Last time out, they defeated USC and UCLA when they played them early in the season at Matthew Knight. And as we both know, the Trojans and the Bruins, they're not playing their best basketball this season. USC, 8-12 and overall, 2-7 and in conference play. UCLA, even though they're, they were the number one seed in the Pac-12 last season, 9-11 and overall this season, 4-5 and in conference play. I think these are winnable games for Oregon, but, you know, turn it over to you guys. How do you guys think the Ducks will fare this weekend in California? Obviously, you think the games are winnable when Oregon already has two Ws in their two matchups against both teams. Going back to those two games, that was a wild weekend for Shellstad. 21 against USC. I think he had 20 against UCLA as well. Oregon, obviously, you know, this is not the same place they were in the conferences last year. As you mentioned a little bit, UCLA, just not a characteristic year for them program-wise. They're towards the bottom of the Pac-12, which, you know, it's rare to see them even in the bottom half of the Pac-12. So, like, as you said, I think it's very, very expected that Oregon can come away with some good performances and hopefully two more wins. And this will be a really interesting situation for both teams here because this is fundamentally a different Oregon team than either UCLA or USC faced last time, and it'll be different. It'll be on their home court. It's almost, to try and take like this into perspective, neither of those two games earlier really matter in this situation because it's such a different team in Oregon coming in. And because UCLA and USC aren't looking nearly as good and all of that momentum is kind of completely diminished at this point, it'll be a very different environment from what we saw last time. And what'll be interesting to me is how does that scheming with both Nate Biddle and Folly Dante back, how does that change how Oregon matches up against USC and UCLA? And how will those teams adapt to that change, maybe looking at film from that previous game and all of a sudden realizing this isn't the same team, this team plays completely differently than the team we saw when Jackson Shellside was putting up those numbers. How does that change, and how are the opponents able to adapt to Oregon's almost different style that they had since last time? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point to make, saying that you know this is a much different team on both sides, especially for Oregon, because last time they didn't have their two star players in Folly Dante and Nate Biddle. And you know we've seen it right now; the dynamic of this team is changing to where they were going pretty guard heavy uh, with their scheme. Now that they got Dante and Biddle, their two bigs back, now they're starting to trying to work them back in the lineup and and make them their star players. Um, but, you know, I think this could be a really good opportunity for them to bounce back. Two teams that, you know, they beat earlier this season, uh, and, you know, they beat them while they were dealing with all the injuries. Uh, you know, and it's a shame because they have to deal with another injury. Uh, in case our listeners haven't heard, Keyshawn Bartholomew was injured during Saturday's game. It didn't look good. Exactly what Dana Allman said in his post-game press conference, and then we found out yesterday after some tests that Bartholomew probably isn't going to be back this season along with Mookie Cook, who we knew was dealing with a knee injury, but now another duck add to the injury list. Uh, this team has faced so much adversity this season. I mean, you got to give a lot of credit to these young guys for stepping up, like Diawara and Shellstad, uh, as well as Dana Allman for being able to coach and win these games with such a young and inexperienced roster. Now with Infali Dante back and Nate Biddle, 
you really need to rely on those two guys to carry this team along with Kuznar. Those are your guys right now with the most experience on this team. Even though Bartholomew, he wasn't putting up the minutes and the same numbers as Kuznard was and Shellstad, he provided the upperclassmen comfort on the floor. And he also put up some really good minutes on the bench, which I really thought that helped out Oregon a lot when Biddle and Dante were, you know, weren't in because of injury. But going back to this weekend, despite the Arizona loss, there is still so much potential with this team. And they're in a very good spot right now, despite all the adversity they faced. And now it's time to see how they respond over the next few games. And if they can prove they're still a top team in the Pac-12, because come March, their last three games of the season include Arizona, Colorado, and Utah, which, I mean, could be key as to what spot they end up getting for the Pac-12 tournament. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that these next couple of games in California are going to be really big uh, for this team. Yeah, look, USC's 2-7 two and, two and seven in the Pac-12. They lost five in, a row, five in a row. Big cushion there for the Ducks to, you know, maybe get some of those road that road anxiety out of their system coming off a loss like they are. I think in the game against UCLA, the return of Biddle and the return of Dante, as opposed to what they had the last time they played against the Bruins, will be a big difference because Adem Bona, you know, we mentioned it's kind of a transition year for UCLA. Bona's the last player from that core that had such high hopes in the tournament last year that's still around. You know, he played, he's third in the Pac-12 in field goal percentage, played really well against Oregon. He was UCLA's top performer in that matchup. So with their two bigs back, I think that is the one matchup that will be affected the most. No, it'll be really interesting, and I like your point about that those last three games, and not only are they going to be important for what seeding the Ducks end up getting in the Pac-12 tournament, that's also going to be a big factor in terms of how much momentum they have coming into that tournament, especially because those are the three teams that they have lost to in the Pac-12. It'll be interesting to see how that team changes and what the momentum feels like going in through those three games and heading into the tournament. For USC and UCLA, it'll be really interesting to see how they match up. And honestly, we talk about this weekend not having been great for the Ducks, both because of the Bartholomew injury and because of that loss to Arizona. But realistically, when you look at the Arizona game and you look at what Caleb Love was able to do, 36 career high, he can't do that every night. And his performance in that game was probably the difference between an Oregon W and an Oregon L. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another thing, too, that is worth mentioning, that Caleb Love just absolutely went off. And that's something that, if Oregon wanted to win, couldn't happen. As simple, you know, as good as defense, you know, they could have played. If Caleb Love put over 30 points, I mean, that was a pretty much a guaranteed win for Arizona. He is their star player without a doubt. Arizona obviously have has a lot of threats, but including Omar Bula, which, you know, he like he was going to be the main guy that was going to match up against Dante and Biddle and was going to be the question of if they can guard them. But then obviously Caleb Love went off for, like you said, 36 points, and there's really nothing that Oregon can do about that. They played pretty good defense, but when a guy is able to shoot the lights out like he did, you just there's, there's just no there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, and a lot of things in a lot of the things I was saying was, oh, Oregon falls at home. It's their first home loss of the season. They lost to Arizona, who was coming off of that loss to Oregon State. Is this a bad thing for the Ducks? And what I would say is, all I saw from that game, and my main takeaway from that game, is that it took the star player of Arizona hitting a career high to be able to knock off the Ducks. That night, that difference between Caleb Love scoring what he normally does and Caleb Love scoring a career high 36 points is the difference in scoring between Oregon and Arizona. And that, to me, when you look at that, the Ducks did not play particularly poorly. I would say the Ducks played very well against Arizona. Caleb Love just played that much better. And you will have to deal with that in the future. You're going to have to deal with when Arizona, when the Ducks play Arizona again. You will have to deal with that in some of the games in the Pac-12 tournament when you see these stars going off. But realistically, if it took that much effort out of Arizona's star player to be able to hold off the Ducks... All that shows me is that the Ducks are dangerous and can beat anybody on any given day. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's definitely a, 
uh, something you have to look at. You, like, you really have to look at the, st- uh, the stats after that game. Even though Oregon lost, and obviously that's what's going to go in the record book as, is a big conference loss that, you know, obviously it, it didn't do much damage to the Ducks, you know, obviously, because they're still tied for first place, and the, they're going to have a, a second match at the end of the season with Arizona, which, especially after this game, I think is very much winnable than before. You know, if they would have won this game, I would have called the – the second game against Arizona a little bit tougher because trying to win two straight against Arizona, which is a top team in the country, is, is pretty tough to do. But now that they lost this game, and it was really just because of the, the lights-out shooting from Caleb Love, I think that that second Arizona game will be a lot more manageable. And if they are able to win that game going into Vegas, I mean, they can set themselves up really, really well to possibly win the whole tournament. Because, you know, right now, not sure if the Ducks are going to be able to make it if they can't you know, pull off an upset. I wouldn't even call it an upset if they're a high seed, but if they can win that tournament, I think that really right now that's their best bet to get into the NCAA tournament this year. Yeah, we're going to learn even more about the Ducks in that second matchup against Arizona. I would say there's probably going to be a little bit more comfort on the Ducks side in that second, you know, time facing Arizona just because they've already played them once. Like we've said a couple times, they ran into Arizona's best player on probably his best night in an Arizona uniform. It's hard to believe that that's going to happen a second time, but now that Oregon's played against a team that's 11th ranked in the nation, you know, has so much success in the Pac-12 these last couple years once, and held their own, they only were outscored by two in the second half. They put up a pretty solid effort. I think there might be a little bit more comfort, and they might come out a little bit better in Arizona in the next matchup. Yeah. Man, Michigan right now, they just got to be, especially after that Arizona game, what, what could have been. Uh, but the men's team, they're going to play USC tomorrow night at 730, uh, and then UCLA on Saturday jump over the women's team the women's team they stay home for a rival matchup with Oregon State on Sunday just the one game this weekend uh, against another top 25 opponent first time these teams play each other this season and we all know that the Oregon Oregon State rivalry it's it's a big one doesn't matter where the teams are at uh, it's going to be the th- but it will be the third of seven straight games that Oregon plays against a top 25 opponent uh, despite the tough schedule though and the losses the team has had I've seen some improvement but what do you guys think where, of where this team is at yeah, the one thing that stuck out to me about the recent play of the Oregon women's team, they put up 70 at Arizona, 63 against Stanford, then they put up 57 against Cal. However, now they're facing back-to-back sub-50-point performances. That's just not a great response after a tough road trip against Stanford and Cal. Look, in this conference right now at 2-7, and seven, Oregon's a little bit of a stepping stone. We mentioned how much that rivalry adds to a matchup, and this is a pretty exciting year for Oregon State, even if you can't say the same for the U of O. So I think there's a lot going into this matchup, and I think for Oregon, right now you're just looking for answers. It's kind of... Something of a waiting game until someone's going to have that big night to sort of turn things around, maybe spark some momentum. Maybe it's trying a new strategy, but, you know, it seems like this Oregon women's team's tried a lot of different things over the season, just not working out in the record. No, and it'll be really interesting, this being also the last uh, rivalry game with Oregon State, with both teams being in the Pac-12, and with these Ducks coming off of these weird, honestly weird performances, you see the defensive Honestly, they've been playing really well on defense, holding teams, Colorado and Utah, teams that both average around 78 to 85 points, somewhere around those margins, both holding them under 65 with the Colorado being 61 and then Utah being 58. But when you look at the offensive performance, they've really got to change the way they're doing something. And especially when you look at the box scores. Now, I've seen a lot of really wacky box scores. These are one of those situations where you see Chance Gray, Filipina Che, Grace Van Sluten all have double-digit points, and then you see everybody else has, at most, five, usually three or two. And 
that to me shows an indicative problem on the offense that the ball needs to be passed around a lot more. Mm. Now, granted, you're seeing that some of these players are not shooting as well as they probably should be, going one for seven, one for five, but realistically, I would rather a team fail to win because they did not have all of their players scoring than to look at a box score that has two or three players with 80 to 90% of the points scored for that team. And that to me, and that to me really is, this is almost the tale of two complete opposites with the men's team, which is very much like anybody can step on up on every given day. If somebody's cold and the rest of the team groups up and steps up a little bit. And then the women's team where you're basically running the entire offense around three people. And to me, that is the main struggle for the Oregon offense right now, and that's what needs to change. Oregon State's going to be a fantastic opportunity for them to demonstrate that they can change that and they can start running their offense more of a full player, all five players on the court, being able to shoot and being able to get those shooting opportunities because this is a home game. This is against Oregon State, so it's a rivalry game, and it's already going to be big enough as a home game as it is. This is their chance to really have all of the crowd momentum behind them to be able to get that momentum to actually start making those changes and making themselves look better. It's a ranked game. Oregon State's very difficult to deal with. However, this is going to be an important opportunity for them to get that, especially with a lot of the other games. In fact, the next home uh, away stretch being Colorado and Utah, both ranked teams right now. Those are going to be very difficult. Looking further down the schedule, honestly, Washington, Washington State, and Cal are almost going to be the most important games of that stretch, even though they are the three teams that are not ranked off their schedule for the rest of the season, because those are the three games where you can say, okay, the Ducks are not quite up to the Pac-12 standard, which is so ridiculously high this year, historically high for the NCAA. But if you can take the three teams that aren't ranked, granted, neither none of them are particularly easy wins, but if you can take those three teams and start to demonstrate that they can play well against those teams, maybe when you're looking at a number top five ranked Colorado or a top 20 ranked Oregon State, those games, those wins aren't going to come. But when you look at a Washington or a Washington State, you can try to make those performances. Those three games are almost going to be the most interesting for me to see how this Ducks team can fare in a Pac-12 tournament setting. Yeah, I mean, you said it like perfectly that the bar in the Pac-12 has just been raised so, so high. There are six teams right now that are in the top 25. It's almost unheard of in, in compared to other conferences. I mean, obviously in the Big Ten, you got Iowa. In the SEC, you have LSU and South Carolina, but no other conference has six top 25 teams uh, currently. So, I mean, that's just how competitive the Pac-12 is. And, and we knew that this was going to be kind of a weird year for Oregon. We knew not just because of the conference, but also because of the roster. They had a lot of players that transferred out last year, including India Rogers and Tahina Papau, which were pretty much the two main stars of that team. Uh, Sedona Prince as well, you know, she left. And really kind of this roster that they – were setting up for this year supposedly kind of just all diminished within one year which is really unfortunate because it was going to be a pretty good roster uh and now you know they have to turn to kind of this younger group of players with trans gray even though she played a lot last season she doesn't have the the same you know experience that philippine che has um and that some of these other players have same thing with grace van sluten uh and it's also a shame too because you know peyton scott was coming over from miami and she was really supposed to be that playmaker of like you were saying gavin that they're not really, you know, there's two players that have good nights and then the rest of them aren't really getting buckets. And that's simply because they don't have a playmaker on the floor like they were supposed to have a Payton Scott. A lot of people say Chance Gray, even when she's in the one spot, she's not a playmaker. She's a shooter. That's what she was recruited to do. That's what she's listed on the roster as. She's kind of had to go into that role, but that's not her natural tendency. And you could see from the box scores, she put up 18 points against Utah 
Like, that is her role. She's not a playmaker. Even though she's had to adjust for it because of no Peyton Scott, that's kind of what she's had to do over these past couple games. And she's transitioned kind of well. Obviously not well enough to beat these top-ranked teams, but she's done a pretty good job so far. But I really like the direction this team is heading. I think that there is some improvement going on with this team. I think the game against Utah, they were up 29-21 at halftime. And, you know, obviously Utah, they were kind of having an off night. They end up coming back and beating Oregon by 10 points. But if you look at the box scores pretty closely and you look at where this team was starting out in conference play, I see a lot of improvement from this team. And I think that's something that Kelly Graves, he understands. It's a process, obviously. And going into the second half of conference season, I think that the these games could be a lot closer. I wouldn't say that, you know, they can necessarily turn into wins against these ranked opponents, but in that stretch against Washington State, Cal, and Washington, I think that they can really do some damage. Yeah, I think it was nice that you pointed out the momentum, Gavin, because Oregon State, like I said, is having a really good year as a program. They're also coming off a pretty big win within the Pac-12 against Colorado. That's pretty huge. They also beat Cal as another team that beat Oregon. Oregon has talent in this roster. We all know Filipina Che can just fill up the stat sheet. There's moments when Grace Van Sluten looks like she can be the one option. I think it's good that you pointed out how Chance Gray is kind of playing a little bit out of position because when you watch this team, it sort of feels like this. She has the ball the most running the point, but she's really a shoot-first type of player. Yeah. Grace Van Sluten in her game needs a lot of touches, needs a lot to get going, sometimes a little bit of a slow starter, although she does have that deep bag. And then, you know, Filipina Che being a center, you want to get her the ball as much as possible too. And so when it's a team and a roster that struggles with depth a little bit, you're just going to be put in some of these situations where, yes, those are the three scoring the most, leading in all the stats, but it's because they kind of need to have the ball that much. There's not as much players to the side of them they can trust to pass to. So I think, you know, with the adversity they face, with the way things have been built, especially with those transfers playing so well in their new homes, it's kind of an interesting team to look at. Definitely not one you're feeling super confident in in these next few matchups against ranked teams, but there's definitely places to build going forward. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, one last point before we, we head to a break here. Just an outlook to the rest of the team's conference schedules. We just talked about the women's team. We'll go back to the men's team for a little bit. Uh, I mean, what what do these two teams need to be do to, you know, set themselves up for possibly a run in the Pac-12 tournament? Because we know that you're going to be – they are, they are going to both play in the Pac-12 tournament. Like, there's no qualifying for it. There's no – you need to get a certain amount of wins to right. get into the tournament. All the teams aren't there. It's an equal playing field, and anything could happen. Mm-hmm. We saw it last year in the women's tournament where number seven ranked <laughs> Washington State, they ended up winning the whole thing. It was one of the craziest games I've ever seen uh, against Utah. Like, nobody would have ever thought for it, but it was a well-coached team. You know, they had a, a pretty decent season, not a super good compared to the other teams that were part of it, but they went to the tournament, and they ended up winning it. So anything could really happen um, for both these teams. What do you guys think they need to do? to set themselves up for for the Pac-12 tournaments. On the men's side, they control their destiny in a way. They can avenge all of their losses to Utah, Colorado, and, of course, really important to have that game against Arizona that we talked about a little bit. You know, Oregon State is also on the men's schedule. They have a win over Arizona. If you want to do some conference math, that might mean a little bit. But the men are in a pretty solid position to, you know, control their own destiny a little bit and get hot right before the tournament. As for the women, you know, you just kind of hope that playing these five more ranked opponents again and again will kind of – you, know, you hope something will raise the bar a little bit. They're facing tough competition again and again, so maybe you start to see some advancement. They get used to playing against teams with this skill level. That's honestly the most you can hope for if you're Kelly Graves and the Ducks. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, for the men, it should be, not to say it's an easier schedule, but it should be a little bit of a let off in terms of what they've had to face with Arizona. And now that they've got that experience against Arizona and know they can compete against Arizona, it'll be interesting to see how much better they are coming off of that. It'll be a little bit different trying to use... W- the teams that they had beaten before as a metric is a little bit difficult because it's a different style of team that we're seeing now versus when it was then. 
I'd be very excited to watch any of these given games. That game against Arizona will be key. Those games against Colorado and Utah will be key. The game, I would also say the game away at Oregon State will be key just to see how they can perform on the road, and that's a great team. USC and UCLA, of course, also very big games. Really no duds, honestly, in any of the rest of the men's schedule. Um, on the women's side, I 100% agree with your point that facing those ranked, those ranked teams back to back to back to back will eventually hopefully raise the bar for them and what they're used to so that when it comes to games like Washington and Washington State, neither of them particularly pushovers by any means, but not necessarily up at the exact same standard as a Colorado or a UCLA, that they will be used to higher competition by then and be able to play those teams at a higher level than necessarily they were at the beginning of the year. Um, but I do think that that Washington, Washington State, California block, those three of those last four games are going to be the most important to try and carry some momentum. And of course, having Stanford is, as the last game of the season is going to be rough for any momentum trying to take in the Pac-12 tournament. But it will be important for those last three of those last four because if they can come in and they can say, okay, three and one, we beat three teams and then we lost to that Stanford game. And that, well, we knew we were going to lose to that Stanford game. So it's all right. Coming into that tournament, maybe with a little bit more momentum, I think that three game stretch is going to be very important to make sure if they want to make a little bit of a run into the tournament. They, I would highly find they're going to be not have that first round by. I would not expect them to somehow qualify in the top four teams in the Pac-12. Hell, they're going to be ranked teams that don't qualify in the Pac-4 top four teams in the Pac-12. But I think building up as any momentum that you can trying to come into that will be very important trying to make a first round or second round upset and trying to get into those later stages of that tournament. Yeah, I mean, and I would even say, too, that Stanford game, it's going to be in Eugene, and, you know, anything can happen because it's right before the Pac-12 tournament. You never know what Stanford's going to do. They might even sit a couple players. You know, they might have locked up number 1C by then or, or you know, at that point. So that can easily be a, another winnable game. And, you know, yeah, just going to the Pac-12 tournament, it, it could be the momentum that – the women's team needs i think that for them they need to drive to the hoop more they really aren't that aggressive inside especially in the paint right now it seems like grace van sluten is the only one who's being aggressive and driving inside it obviously it's tough with chance gray she's more of a shooter she's not really a, a person uh, a player that likes to drive in same thing with filipina che she she usually gets aggressive but not as aggressive as you want her to be and i think that that's really something that can make these games a lot closer for the men's team i think that they just need to play better defensively especially in the paint now that you haven't followed Dante back now that you have Nate Biddle back you can really control the paint and you know ultimately I mean if you can control the paint in the Pac-12 that's like gonna win you so many more games than if someone is able to just shoot the lights out because obviously there's gonna be nights when Kuznar and Shellstad aren't gonna be able to score um but you know I, I think if they can lock it down in the paint defensively they should have a lot of success going on that was a lot yeah. That was a lot. Love and we that. got a lot more coming up. Diamond Sport after the other side of this break. And then we're talking about some pro sports later on. Keep it right here on 88.1 FM. KWVA. KWVA. The Skate Park Project, formerly the Tony Hawk Foundation, is a skateboarding organization that helps communities build public skate parks for youth in underserved communities. To date, nearly 600 recipients of the Skate Park Project grants have opened their skate parks. These parks receive more than 6 million annual visits by youth who benefit from the active lifestyle and camaraderie the facilities promote. Learn more about the Skate Park Project by visiting www.skatepark.org.
UNICEF works across 190 countries and territories to reach the children and young people who are most at risk and most in need. As conflict escalates in Ukraine, UNICEF is on the ground providing safe water, emergency supplies, and social services to children and their families. Learn more at unicef.org forward slash Ukraine forward slash EN. For over 50 years, Help Heal Veterans has utilized recycled materials to create, manufacture, and distribute art therapy kits that help vets deal with pain management, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and many other challenges. Our kits help veterans find sustainable wellness in their lives. We are proud to help those who served our country. Our mission is to help our veterans. To learn more, go to HealVets.org. That's HealVets.org. Sponsored by Help Heal Veterans. Hey, this is Joey McMurray, broadcaster for the Oregon Sports Network and former KWVA sports director. But he's wearing Adidas pants. You can't do that. And you're listening to Quacksmack. Welcome back to Quacksmack here on 88.1. Saul Gavon alongside Charlie Martindale and Gavin Carpenter. We just talked about some Oregon men's and women's basketball. The men... We'll head to California to take on UCLA tomorrow night. Actually, no, USC tomorrow night, and then UCLA on Saturday. And then the women will take on Oregon State on Sunday. Osnoda going to be on the call right here on 88.1. But now we turn on to some Diamond Sports. We've been talking about it, or at least I've been talking about my show for the past few weeks. But now it really feels real. We're on the last day of January, we're a little bit over a week away uh, from you know first pitch for softball at least, and then baseball will kick off soon after but there's just so much in the air. Like, I'm excited for this. This, this is the part that really just gets me out of that. Lacrosse, that, too. Lacrosse, too. Well, let's not forget about lacrosse. Yeah. Shout out lacrosse, too. I mean, acro and tumbling, too. I mean, uh, there's so much that goes on in the spring. Intramural dodgeball. Intramural dodgeball. Oh, my God. Are you signed up for a team? Not unfortunately. Last oh. year I got to do a little bit, but nothing this year. Nothing so. too much. I, junior I feel like that just is too competitive yeah. because I do intramural volleyball, and even that's, like, really crazy. But intramural dodgeball sounds like – it, 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 it sounds it sounds like elementary school, you know, dodgeball, but on like just steroids, pretty much. Right. I, I that I that's that's what I imagine it'd be like. There's there are people who like try to win that mm-hmm. thing, and it will like are professional dodgeball players yeah. that like at least you consider. <laughs> uh, we're going back to the diamond sports. Uh, just over a week until the season of diamond sports begins. Softball are going to kick off their season. Uh, a week from tomorrow, actually, in Florida at the NFCA leadoff classic against Indiana. They're going to play six games in their opening weekend, including Kansas on Friday and Clemson on Saturday. And then baseball will play their first game a little over a week later on February 16th in a, against Oklahoma in the Shriner Children's College Showdown, Texas. Uh, they'll also play Baylor and Texas Tech, who currently ranks at number 18 in the preseason top 25 poll. Probably will be the toughest game of the weekend. Uh, but for both these teams, really tough schedules to start the season. But very, very high expectations for both teams. Uh, breakdown, uh, we'll start with baseball. You know, this is a young, talented roster. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and also a much different roster than last year in terms of experience, but not in terms of skill or talent. There's only three seniors on this year's roster and over 14 underclassmen. Now, a lot of these underclassmen, they did get playing time last season. But they were not everyday players like Bennett Thompson and Jacob Walsh who played in those key conference games and playoff games. They got that experience that a lot of these underclassmen didn't. Looking at the roster and the bar that last year's team set with making it to the Super Regional, can this young, talented roster step up this season and put themselves where they were at, if not further than last year? Yeah, it feels so weird looking at the names on this roster 
after last spring. You know, last year it was just such a high-powered offensive lineup full of these juniors, seniors, just so many upperclassmen that you really felt confident in at the plate, game in, game out. It was kind of a slugfest every day for Oregon, like we know Pac-12 baseball ends up being. This year, completely different. You know, you mentioned a lot of the freshmen and redshirt freshmen and the sophomore, especially on the pitching side of things. They did get a lot of run last year, and that's because with the way transfers, injuries worked out, Oregon was operating with, you know, almost a pretty much a preschool rotation last season. It was just freshman after freshman after freshman, and they sort of figured things out as the year went on, obviously hosting that regional here against Oral Roberts. The rotation wasn't perfect, but with an offseason of experience, now all of them a year older, you hope to see that side of things, you know, use their experience for the better. Yeah, 100%. And this will be really interesting, especially this is a good uh, opportunity, I think, this opening tournament in Texas for them to really get on the same page. You're having a lot of major offensive players from last year that aren't that are not returning you had um drew cowley you had tanner smith you had riku nishida all i believe those are the top three in terms of plate appearances from last year all three well of them. let's not forget about sabine Ceballos. i mean i yeah. know you're a freshman but me and me and charlie know about sabine Ceballos. easily the best player from last Mr. year's Blue roster Jays but legend, i believe Got no uh am i wrong Braves. Braves, Braves okay, yeah gotcha, yeah gusta braves legend uh but yeah going back to you gavin yeah no 100 percent and but a lot of these veterans that you have on this team, a lot of the veterans from last year are not there anymore, and it'll be an interesting situation. A lot of freshmen coming in, a lot of transfers coming in, a lot of young guys still from last year are going to be making up that core of offense. It'll be an interesting situation for this term uh, tournament, especially in the beginning of the year, to see how well they can mesh, how well that offense can produce, especially against while Texas Tech being one of the better teams in the country this year, ranked at the 8th. Spot right now, Oklahoma and Baylor not particularly good uh, teams coming off from last year in the Big Twelve. It'll be interesting to see how they can work up to that Texas Tech game. It's a really good series of games to see how well they're going to play this year, and it's a good start from a tournament perspective to try and get these new guys and get these um, younger guys into that rotation, into that roster, and see how well they can produce offensively. Yeah, I mean, Mark Wazikowski talked about it in his uh, preseason media availability that this is like the first time I think since Oregon baseball came back that they played in a tournament like this. Like usually with softball. They're at a few tournaments before because they've had the recognition. They've had the success. They've been invited to these tournaments. Baseball, I mean, a few years ago, you wouldn't even know Oregon had a baseball team or that they were, you know, right. relevant. But now, especially with last year, with what they did in the Super Regional, they're getting invited to play against these top teams. And, and they'll be park, too. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, it's going to be a fun fun series to watch. They're playing against three good teams. I mean, I think like you said, Gavin, it's going to be a good build to where they play Oklahoma and Baylor. They're not exactly the top teams compared to like the other you know teams that are playing in this. Let's not forget Texas is playing in this one. Right. I think it's a good thing that Oregon's not playing Texas because mm-hmm. that would just be too crazy. Uh, but then that Texas Tech game, that's really going to be uh, a key and see how how can the Ducks you know what are they going to look like early on? Um, because then you know they come back, they play a few teams that you know are are, are pretty manageable to beat, and then they start conference schedule. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's going to be a good start for them. I think that this is a team where a lot of guys left, but you know a lot returned, and they're going to be top players for this team. The hooding, the, the sorry, not the hooding, the hitting mm-hmm. could need some time to develop. Obviously, you got guys that are coming back that were hitting every day. Guys like Bennett Thompson, Jacob Walsh, Bryce Betcher, who were really solid options for this, you know, for this lineup. And we'll probably see them two, three, four. But then you get to this lower part of the lineup. You got to see how guys like Carter Garotti and you know, uh, Anson Eros, you know, he might get some at-bats as well. Dominic Hellman, he played a few games last year. We'll see how this, you know, lineup can do because even though, like I said in the beginning, they got some at-bats last year, but those were in the, you know, first couple weeks of games where they were going up by 10, 15 runs, and then Mark Wasikowski just got them in for the last few innings. So they got some at-bats, 
but they don't have the experience playing against these tough teams like they did in, in conference play. We'll, um, but the pitching, though, I think that they could be dominant, and I think that they could be more dominant than last year, and they could really be the the, the dominant part of this team. You got Isaac Aon, who's returning. Obviously, he came back. He got drafted this past offseason, but he said, you know what, I want another year with my boys in Eugene. R.J. Gordon, he's also healthy. He's coming back. And then, obviously, Logan Mercado, who was a really steady option last year. Uh, he was really the Saturday guy for the Ducks, and he did a pretty good job. There were a couple games that they kind of slipped away, but Oregon will win on Friday. Logan Mercado will go on Saturday. We usually get them pretty deep. They win a couple of those games. And then, like you said, Charlie, the, the, the Sunday games were just yeah. not, not too much fun to watch. Uh, but a lot of the freshmen, they've had experience now. And, I mean, it could be a solid rotation with a pretty pretty good bullpen. I feel uh, pretty pretty strong about this rotation. Obviously, you know, I kind of mentioned how things came together for the team at the tail end of last year. The narrative is really flipped with how so many of the young players or pretty much the side of the ball with less experience is in the lineup now for Oregon. You know, I think the, the rotation for the Ducks is really going to embrace that. Being such a young rotation last year because of injury, because of all those things, I think it builds a lot of confidence. They were kind of thrown into the fire as a group in a conference like the Pac-12 that is so offensive-leaning. And this year, you know, with that one season under their belt, I think you're in a position to have a lot of confidence. You've seen all these rosters before. You've seen a lot of these players before. Like you said, with some of the, you know, six through nine hitters, the depth on the bench offensively, hitting in garbage time in Eugene is very different, you know, whether it's on a Sunday then versus playing in Texas Rangers ballpark against a team like Texas Tech. So there's definitely going to be some growing pains, definitely a learning curve, but especially in the offensive side, this is a place for, or in a time for some of the young players to step up. You might find the next everyday players for Oregon that can give them some consistent production. No, I agree with you 100%. And the good thing about this is aside from the tournament in Arlington, you're not seeing the non-conference schedule is not one of the hardest non-conference schedules that could be possible with the way Oregon performed last year and the teams that they could have scheduled. So realistically, aside from that, you're going to have Lafayette, you're going to have UC Santa Barbara, and you're going to have Grand Canyon down in Phoenix. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they can grow off coming off of this tournament with those three series um, going through two of them away, UC Santa Barbara and then Grand Canyon. It'll be interesting to see how they can grow as a team and how that offensive production can grow. I agree with your point about the pitching staff. I do think that this is a chance. You're not having you. They've got a, almost a complete rotation going already. They've got a good idea as to who's going to be in that rotation, and a lot of the guys who we were concerned about as freshmen last year, they've now got that experience from last year. They did get kind of. I like your point. Thrown into the fire. I like that um, phrasing, and now, but now they've got that experience. They can come back in. They've had a chance to play they've had a chance to get that experience and now they're coming back in possibly to get that spot the bullpen's coming in possibly with that experience and you're going to see a lot of that is going to benefit this team from a pitching perspective as a whole i really do like this non-conference schedule for the ducks to build up with those two series or excuse me with those three series it'll be important to see how they can grow offensively off of those teams once you get into teams like arizona state how will how much momentum they're coming off of that and how well they've played in those three series will be very important coming into that conference slate yeah, I mean, it, it, this team has a lot of depth, especially at the the pitching position. I think that they can have one of the best, uh, you know, pitching rosters in the conference. Obviously, they're going to have the rotation pretty settled. But, you know, I think last year they had a really good bullpen, and you had guys like Josh Malaris, you had Matt Dallas, guys who can come out of the bullpen in that safe situation. The key this year is going to be finding out who can come into that safe situation uh, because there weren't a lot of guys who really came in the bullpen. The, the three freshmen, Matthew Grabman, Leo Yeoman, and Toronto Spoljeric, those were guys who would kind of start games, the Sunday games. Uh, we never really saw them come out of the bullpen too much. We saw a few appearances towards the end of the year, but not really anything late in the game. 
Um, but I, I kind of like those guys, those three guys. I think they showed a lot of heart. I think they have really good stuff, especially Grabman. Um, you know, I think he has, he brings a lot to the team, and he could potentially be one of those guys that you call on in the eighth or ninth inning, try to get the save. Um, but it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, what is going to be the the order of the bullpen as far as guys who would come in because it's kind of the opposite of last year where they didn't really have that deep of rotation but they had a really good bullpen now this year they have a really good rotation and you know a bullpen that will be kind of questionable going into the in the season right and it's a rotation that you know could have some arms flex to the bullpen if there's not enough starts to go along around you know i think with those three freshmen you mentioned or freshmen last year now sophomores that came out of the pen a lot i think they're going to eat up the majority of the appearances in relief but you know, these guys who, as true freshmen, had a lot of higher leverage opportunities for a team that was playing with a lot to play with at in this home stretch of the year. You know, again, it comes back to experience. It comes back to the fact that now as sophomores, they might be fighting for starting roles in their upperclassmen year. So lots to pitch for for them, and I think it's going to be an interesting set of arms. Yeah, and I mean, we're going to see how they do in conference. I mean, obviously, they won the Pac-12 championship. It's the reason that they got into the NCAA tournament, and, you know, obviously, we know what happened that. They electric really take end of the year. Electric, regardless. absolutely electric. They got hot when they needed to, mm-hmm. especially in that regional tournament over in Vanderbilt. Uh, but you look at it throughout the season. Even though they won the tournament, there were still a few series where they won game one pretty easily, and then games two and three, they just couldn't close it out. And I think that's going to have to be the difference this year mm-hmm. that obviously, you know, you want to go and win the Pac-12 tournament because that's always going to be how you get into the tournament. But we know as tough a conference is, especially for baseball and other sports as well, but for baseball uh, right now at least, it's a really tough conference. And if you are able to be in one of those top three spots, I mean, you're setting yourself up for success and putting a, a good resume together to get yourself into the tournament not as you know relying on the Pac-12 tournament uh, championship as they did last year uh, but we're just gonna have to see how they last do year uh, for Pac-12 baseball too. last year for Pac-12 last, last year for Pac-12 for anything I, yeah. I keep forgetting it's it's football ended basketball we done yeah. soon and then baseball and softball and then baseball is one that just seemed like it fit though big Pac-12 baseball fan myself growing up but yeah I mean I, I the Pac-12 is always just like there's just so much history yeah. and it feels like this year especially there's just so much happening in each sport in the yeah. Pac-12 it's going out with a bang it's going out with a bang and we we, we love it yeah. we love it we absolutely love being a part of it Rest and excited to be a part of the big well, not I was gonna say Big Ten, but Big whoever, however many they'll however play. many schools are gonna come up. Uh, let's move over to some softball. Uh, so we talk about a lot in college about filling the gaps each season, especially when the players leave, don't have eligibility anymore, and it's really on the coaches to fill those gaps. Uh, Melissa Lombardi really outdid herself in recruiting this year, and there weren't a lot of gaps because luckily most of the team was young. And decided to come back, but you look at who left last year or who, who graduated. Tara McGowan, who was the backbone of this team, who was the the star pretty much for the last five years uh, behind the plate at catcher. Allie Bunker, the second baseman, one of the best players to ever play Oregon softball. She had an amazing hitter career. She was hitting over 300 in every single season. Carissa Ornall, she didn't play a lot, but she would pinch hit and come up clutch in some of those big moments. Those three alone had such a big impact. And everyone was wondering, who's going to replace them? Well, Coach Lombardi answered that question. She brought in Emma Koff for her last year of eligibility, who you know was going to fill in for, ter- uh, for McGowan behind the plate. She brings a lot of experience. She was all ACC catcher at Georgia Tech. Really, really smart player. And also she brought in uh, Kyla Pollard, who transferred from Florida. She's obviously not going to play this season due to transfer rules, but she's only a sophomore, so she can have a big impact on the, the next few years for the program. And then also a pretty sizable amount 
of freshmen and a variety of positions, a few infielders, a few outfielders, and a few pitchers. Unlike baseball, there's no question the experience of this team. But obviously, similar to other sports, this is a tough conference. And as good as Oregon was last season, they still finished fifth in the conference. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty wild. All, so they were fifth in the conference and ahead of them four ranked opponents, which is kind of the story of the Pac-12 last year for softball. Yeah, so I mean, I, I'll ask you guys this. With this being the last season of the Pac-12 and the roster that Melissa Lombardi has put together and all the gaps that she fills, can Oregon be a serious contender for a top spot in the Pac? Depends what you mean by top. I definitely think it's it's a possibility. Obviously, everybody in that building thinks they're going to go in and run the table. Maybe not run the table, but definitely make it to the top of the conference. This is the first year since 2021 that Oregon's actually taken a step forward in the NFCA poll preseason rankings. They went from 10 to 18 two years ago, 18 to 24 last year, up to 15 this year. Like you said, with all those names being brought in, both freshman-wise through recruiting and through transfers, there's a lot of talent on this roster. Expectations are high, and so I think there's, there's no reason to believe they can't make it to the top three, maybe top five again in the conference. Yeah, this is an absolutely loaded conference, and their non-conference schedule is absolutely brutal as well. I mean, from a Pac-12 perspective, it's anybody's game right now in terms of all of the ranked teams. I would say that Oregon has just as good of a chance as anybody else on any given day to be able to win a lot of these games. It will be very interesting, though, for the Ducks, not as many other teams in the Pac-12 have this um, schedule set up this way, that a lot of their tough um, games in the Pac-12 are going to be on the road. And that's going to be very difficult for the Ducks, both from the non-conference late, where a lot of their big tournaments are going to be on the road, of course, excluding the Jane Sanders Classic and that matchup with Florida State. But a lot of the teams that they're going to have to deal with are going to be away. You're going to have UCLA and Los Angeles. You're going to have Stanford and Stanford. You're going to have Utah and Salt Lake City. A lot of these higher-ranked opponents are going to be on the road, and you're going to have to get really comfortable on the road if you're the Oregon softball team because realistically, a lot of your tough games are going to be there. you got to make a road game your home game because those are the games that are going to matter in the Pac-12. also too, that with, with so many of these high-profile games coming on the road, every home game is going to matter that much more. Yeah. yeah. The schedule makers did them no favors with this, this lineup this year. They're playing a lot of tough games, a lot of tough opponents. We know that's coming with how the conference is laid out, but... It's not going to be a season where dropping a game on the road where you were leading late, just let it slip away, is going to fly. Yeah, and I mean, you're exactly right that a lot of these games are going to be on the road, and they're going to be tough games. I mean, we saw it last year with with Stanford, with UCLA, and uh, you know, also with Arizona. They played those games at home, and you could definitely sense the team had a lot more success at home. They swept Arizona. They didn't do too well against UCLA and Stanford, but obviously we know that those teams are top of the Pac-12 for a reason, that they're some of the top teams in the nation. And Stanford was the team that, that Oregon lost to in the first round of the Pac-12 um, tournament. So, I mean, it, it just shows how tough this conference is that, you know, Oregon, they finished fifth in the conference, and somehow they got matched up with number seven-ranked Stanford. And they didn't lose that bad. It was They only lost three to four in that game. So it was a pretty hard-fought game, but that was just how tough it was. And luckily they were still able to get into a regional, and they won that regional too. Right. Um, you know, and and then they went on to place Oklahoma State, which we know Oklahoma State is just so so dominant. Like they are up there with with Oklahoma and and Florida State is some of the most dominant teams uh, in the nation. But I I really think that with the roster that Melissa Lombardi built uh, this year, that she was able to bring in an experienced catcher um, to catch these you know pitchers like Morgan Scott, like Stevie Hansen, pitchers that did really well last year with Tara McGowan. Now she brings in Emma Koff, who's had a lot of experience working with good pitchers. She's also a really good hitter. She does well behind the plate at, you know, framing. And she also, you know, she has a strong arm with throwing down the second. Right. Like, she is really the, the ideal replacement for Tara McGowan 
and she just fills that gap so quickly. And then you talk about uh, Kyla Pollard as well. You know, it just sets up a, a, a nice next few years for this team that she can become the backbone of this team like Ali Bunker was. Yeah, I like the move, especially experience-wise behind the plate. It's just showing that this coaching staff understands how important catcher is. Obviously, they saw that in previous years with just how good, you know, they had it behind the plate. And so I think bringing someone in that is older, like you said, their final year of eligibility, it's just someone who's that much more likely to build the relationship, build the bond with the young pitchers, and make sure that everything runs smoothly pretty much game in, game out. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. Absolutely fantastic recruiting moves, and this schedule is going to be tough, and you're going to need all of those players. You're going to need everybody on this team to perform at their best for a lot of these games. I would argue, depending on how you which poll you're looking at, up to 11 teams in the top 25 on Oregon's schedule right now. You are going to need every single one of, their, of your players to be playing at your absolute best from an Oregon perspective, and it's going to be tough, but this is absolutely... The Ducks have a chance to really show us something special here. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's it's going to be a tough schedule, but the roster that they have right now, the experience that they've had, you know, because I, it's not just the experience of playing, but also playing in these high-profile games against these top-ranked teams, I think is definitely going to do – it's it's definitely going to help the Ducks out this year. Um, you know, it's it's a really tough schedule. Like Gavin said, they play Florida State, uh, and then they come and just play in a, in a really tough conference. So we're going to see how they do. This is really going to be one of the – at least my opinion, one of the harder schedules that – uh, a team can play this year uh, real quick before we take a break just uh, you know give me you guys kind of 30 second spiel what are your guys expectations for each team for baseball and softball this year yeah I think for baseball it's just going to come down to playing consistently in Pac-12 play my one concern is the fact that this is a team that's going to have to lean on their pitching in an offensive conference but for them I think the expectation is to stay in the top five in the conference and hopefully maybe make it a little farther than that before the tournament as for softball I think you know a trip to Oklahoma City is definitely something that could be on the radar for them you know, expectations are high, like I mentioned. So I would say that's the team that probably has the, the higher ceiling, a lot of potential on the softball side. I would absolutely agree with you. I think that from a baseball perspective, this is a team that we've found has been coached very well and we've found can win games when necessary. That being said, will they be able to grow into the shoes that last year's team had and will they be able to grow into a position where they can go very far in postseason play? I don't know. I'll be very excited to watch and find out. From a softball perspective, this is a team with very high expectations. This is a team with a very high strength of schedule. And this is a team with a very high level of experience from a lot of their players. To me, this is the ultimate year of the softball team is going to have to go through an absolute gauntlet here. And champions are forged by fire. If there was a situation for the Ducks to be set up for success, getting through this slate with a high um, winning percentage, getting through conference with a high winning percentage, getting into that third, maybe third, second, third, or fourth slot in the Pac-12, and then being able to compete at a high level in the tournament, this is a team that can really run far. At least with the baseball team, you see they could go far. With the women's uh, softball team, you're seeing they almost will go far, and you're expecting them to go far, and will they be able to hold up to those expectations? That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think the bar is it's set high for both teams for sure. I, I think especially with what baseball did last year and obviously the success that softball has had in recent years, uh, both teams have a lot of expectations. They want to go far. They want to reach for that uh, for the NCAA tournament. I think for softball, they they have a lot more potential to reach that bar. Baseball, I think, could have the potential as well, um, depending on how they respond in these first few weeks. Could they could very much set themselves up for a run at the NCAA tournament? But with the softball team, there is just so much experience, and I am really excited to watch both these teams play uh, starting in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to step aside for another break. When we come back, though, we're going to talk about some conference championship football. And then if we have time, some NBA basketball. Will we have time? I don't know. We're going to find out. 
on the other side of this break here on 88.1. I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you prevent wildfires. Dude, I've got this. I've been camping since I was five years old. But I am a camping influencer. You know what? I'll bet you five bucks. Assistant Smokey, what is the best way to put out a campfire? To put out a campfire, drown with water, stir, drown again. Then make sure the fire is out cold by feeling with the back of your hand. Wait, really? I'll take the five bucks. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Students, when I call the reason for your absences throughout the years, please exit the auditorium without your high school diploma. <clears throat> Too tired. Family trip. Sick day. Starting the holidays early. Starting in the sixth grade, students who miss 18 days or more of school in a year for any reason will fall behind and risk not graduating high school. How many days of school has your child missed this year? Absences add up. Keep track at boostattendance.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live united. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. This is Travis Tyke, former assistant sports director at KWVA. Cheers! You're listening to Quack Smack. Welcome back to Quack Smack here on 88.1 FM. Saul Gavon alongside Charlie Martindale and Gavin Carpenter. Uh, we got about, what, nine minutes left? Uh, took a little longer than I expected with the other two segments. But uh, we're going to talk about some NFL football. We just had the Sounds conference good. championship weekend. Uh, the Chiefs and 49ers are going to the Super Bowl. And, Charlie, I see you. Uh, sighing. Yeah, we I know talking. you're because you, you're from the Bay Area, right? I am. Yeah, not a Niners fan. I was I was on the Raiders side, being from Oakland, growing up. Yeah. Can't say I'm a Raiders fan post move, but you know it's mostly not about location or anything. It's just a little bit of an exhausted matchup, in my opinion. It's gonna be exciting, <laughs> obviously, witnessing greatness like we get to do with Mahomes, who's now, in my opinion, seriously in that goat conversation already, which feels kind of crazy to say. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that that was the biggest thing was that. You knew that it was very much a possibility mm -hmm. that it was going to be the Chiefs and 49ers, but you were hoping, especially with that 49er game, I really thought that Detroit was going to pull out. They were up by 17 at one point, and they, they just couldn't close it out. And, you know, it, it's it's it kind of sucks because any other year this would have been a really good matchup to look forward to, but just knowing what these teams have done the past few years, it just kind of like, like, man, we're getting the same thing again. Like, I, I am – Still excited to watch it. I think it will be a very good Super Bowl. I think these are two teams that can match up well with each other. But, uh, you know, with the success of Mahomes, he's been there past, you know. What is it, three of the last four? Three of the last four. And then, you know, obviously 49ers weren't, you know, they they were there uh, uh, not a few years ago, right before 2019. Yeah, 2019. 2012 as well. So it, it's just a matchup that we've seen before, and I guess a lot of people weren't looking forward to it. They kind of wanted uh, a new team in there, which uh, would have could have been the Lions or the Ravens, but – you know, now we, we're, we're just back to the, the 49er Chiefs Super Bowl. Gavin? And it hurts almost, not necessarily because this isn't going to be a good matchup, because this is going to be a very fun matchup to watch. And these are going to, these are, I think these are the two best teams in the NFL right now. I feel like that's not necessarily, you could argue the Ravens, but based on the way they played in the AFC Championship game, I think that 
considering the fact that this was the game that was predict this was the predicted Super Bowl even from the beginning of the season, I feel like it was a fairly certain fact that these two teams are the best two teams in the NFL right now, and it'll be a very exciting matchup to see, but when you see teams like the Lions, who have gone really far and they have not been there in a very long time, or the Ravens, who haven't really shown that they can get there since 2012, um, that's what makes this game, so these two teams in this matchup, especially because it was a rematch of Super Bowl 54, not necessarily the most exciting game to watch, but fundamentally, both of these two teams, as much as it is a rematch, both of these two teams are completely different than they were in 54. You've got Brock Purdy now leading the 49ers. You've got a Kansas City Chiefs team, which is somehow more defensive heavy than we're used to seeing. I would almost say that the defense is the reason why they got here and is going to be the star of the show, considering how Brock Purdy has not been necessarily the best against strong secondaries. But it'll be a really interesting matchup to see. I think I'm very excited to see how the Chiefs defense does. I think that even though you say it's going to be Mahomes, it's going to be Kelsey, that's going to be a lot of the things that you're looking for the Chiefs. I think that this defense is really the star of this team and will really be the thing to watch in this game. Yeah, it's it, this is definitely a different team than we saw a few years ago in 2019, uh, You know, when the Chiefs were able to win their first Super Bowl with Patrick Mahomes. Uh, and it's actually surprising, too, and, and I think that's the other thing that, that sucks, too, is that you got to give the Chiefs, the Chiefs a lot of credit, even if you don't like them, because they weren't exactly a team that you thought could make it to this point. They weren't doing so well midway through the season, and you know, with so many of the guys that were departing, I mean, Mahomes doesn't really have a wide receiver core like he used to. No Tyreek Hill. Really uh, not close. Really not close at all. And Not even a Juju this year, any veteran. Exactly. I mean, like that 2019 roster, he had a solid three, four guys he can go to, and besides Travis Kelsey – and now he's got what maybe one or, or two max like mm -hmm. and obviously you know Kelsey uh, teams are going to have him locked down like it's true. it'll be they, Fred they, Warner pretty much a spy on him yeah, all, all of the Super Bowl exactly mm -hmm. and obviously like if Mahomes wasn't the athletic quarterback he was like if he was just staying in the pocket the whole time there's no way the Chiefs would have made it but he was able to make a lot of plays happen with these young receivers and you know hopefully Kansas City gets some help in the offseason but it, to me it's really surprising that they were able to make it to the Super Bowl without having a good core receivers like that just puts so much more like like wow on the homes that he was able to get his team there and it's true and because everyone's so used to seeing the chiefs in the super bowl and at the top of their division it kind of felt like all season people were looking at other teams you know everyone was saying there's no real contender out of the afc all season long you know the chiefs were i think just 11 and 6 there was it was by far the worst season in the mahomes era yeah. that we've witnessed especially mm -hmm. when it comes to receivers but again you know it was all this talk about the ravens it was that weird weather game against the Dolphins team that had a lot of hype all year. It kind of seemed like the Chiefs just ended up being the last team standing in the AFC. And credit to them, they played a lot of clutch performances, especially the two on the road. But, you know, like you said, this is a defensive team that is going to rely on their defense a lot more. The Tyree Kill trade kind of was a move to get more defensive. They've hit on all their picks in the draft. And against the Niners team that's had to come from behind twice, if the Packers kicker Carlson makes that kick, who knows what the Niners season looks like. They were down 17, like you said, to Detroit. You know, this is a team that in Kansas City hasn't really played a ton from behind in the postseason. So I think with the way their games recently have gone, I'd be leaning towards the Chiefs on this one, as crazy as it seems. Yeah, I mean, because, like, like, the 49ers are, like, still a crazy good team. But right now they're more on the defensive side. Uh, I think the Chiefs are still a really good defensive team. But obviously with Mahomes, they're going to be leaning towards their offense to rack up the, the scoreboard. Yeah. And with the 49ers, the defense that they've had, obviously, like you said, for Warner, Got a shout out Eric Armstrong, pro duck. You duck know, he, ma he made a good play on uh, more too. Duck yeah, legend. yeah. I mean, there's so many guys on this roster that they can turn to, 
And obviously the offense, you know, it's it's pretty good. You got Christian McCaffrey. Anytime he goes on the field, like it's easily a go-to option for, mm-hmm. for this offense. We're gonna see how Brock Purdy plays, you know, in a Super Bowl. I saw a stat too that the difference in, in contracts that these guys are making. Brock Purdy's only like at a couple hundred thousand. He's making less than Arch Manning, right? He's making less than Arch Manning and he's playing in a Super Bowl. Meanwhile, Patrick Mahomes is making I don't even know. 100 mil, something like that. Yeah, like I think it, it was the, the first over half a billion dollar contract yeah. in the U.S. too. So uh, Honestly, it seems like he might be worth every penny, which you don't usually find yourself saying with deals that big. Yeah, The quarterback matchup is really interesting because in the regular season, Purdy outplayed Mahomes. This was one of the worst seasons in Mahomes' career. Part of it's because of that receiver's problem, but Purdy was getting MVP chatter all season long. Hasn't quite matched that you know, since that Christmas Day game in the playoffs. He's been a little bit more pedestrian, but big opportunity for former Mr. Irrelevant. No, 100%. And this will be a really interesting for uh, from a quarterback matchup perspective. Now, we don't have time to break down how many things are wrong with the fact that Arch Manning is getting more money than Brock Purdy here. But it'll be a really uh, interesting matchup on from an offensive matchup perspective. Also interesting, I think we would all say that the Chiefs are probably going to win, or at least that all three of us would favor the Chiefs. Yet neither ESPN nor Vegas agrees. ESPN's got um, the Niners at 60%. Vegas has got the line at San Francisco minus two. That one's jumped from a 1.5. It's just interesting to see that the Chiefs, though the fact that they've been able to be a little bit more dominant, or, well, not necessarily as dominant, but the 49ers have set that bar pretty low, that the Niners are still coming in as the favorites, despite the fact that Brock Purdy has shown signs of weakness in the past with stronger secondaries and stronger defenses, and the fact that the Chiefs are such a defensive team. It'll be interesting to watch. I would personally favor the Chiefs. I think that the Chiefs' defense gets the job done in the end. I think... All of the noise will be made about Mahomes and this, but I think it'll be one of those weird, like seventeen to ten, almost like the AFC Championship game, seventeen to ten. The Chiefs get out to an early lead and then just steamroll the 49ers on defense for the majority of the game. Yeah, I mean it's it's going to be a good matchup, but obviously, you know, for me personally, I this is this is not the matchup that I wanted. I was hoping that like as some team like the Bills or the Ravens yeah. were going to make it in. It's unfortunate. This, the, this might be a year where I might be glued to the Pro Bowl instead mm-hmm. of the, uh, the Super flag Bowl. Football, Pro the Bowl flag games. football. Uh, I mean, hey, it, it should be pretty fun. There's a lot of good yeah. guys that are going to compete in this. Uh, that's all the time we got for today, though. So we'll go on alongside Charlie Martindale and Gavin Carpenter. Boys, it was a fun show. Always love being on with you guys. Uh, tune in tomorrow, though, for the director show. Knight, Goretzky, Osnoda, and myself, actually. I wow, totally forgot. Time. I totally forgot I was, I was on there. It's crazy. I, I still can't believe it. Tune in tomorrow, though at 6 o'clock for the Thursday edition of Quacksmack. But that's going to do it all here tonight. Smack on KWVA. If you miss any portion of the show or just want to listen again, you can find the full show recordings online at kwvaradio.org. Plus, we're on Twitter at KWVA Sports. Join us again for our next episode tomorrow at 6 p.m. right here on KWVA Eugene 88.1 FM.